Take your Bibles out this morning. We're going to take a break from our series through the book of Acts. And uh, I want to call your attention this morning to the, the gospel and the Lord's Supper. And so I'm actually going to have you find three passages of Scripture. Exodus 12 will be the first. Find Exodus 12. And then 1 Corinthians 5. We'll just be looking at one verse from 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. And then 1 Peter 3, 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. The gospel in the Lord's Supper. And if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll uh, read. At this time, we'll just read uh, Exodus 12. Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it unto the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat. Unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day unto the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, and, and no work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, 
You shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, and all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil in the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. To the firstborn of the captain who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians... And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Now looking over at verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Tell you what, let's go ahead and read those other two verses. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now underscore this, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 
And then in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us understanding in our hearts and minds to to tie all of these verses of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant together. And we thank you today, Lord, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Folks, we know that to misunderstand the gospel can be eternally deadly. No wonder that the Apostle Paul was so insistent when he wrote to the Galatians. He said, if I or anybody else or even an angel from heaven were to come to you and preach any other gospel than the one that we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. It is critical that we understand the gospel. And we need to understand what it is not. The gospel is not simply love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's the Christian ethic that grows out of the gospel, but it's not the gospel itself. Likewise, to go around the world and do kind and benevolent deeds, that's an important outgrowth. That's part of the Christian ethic of how we're to express and live out our faith, but even that is not the gospel. Now, as we look at these three passages this morning, I want us to get a fresh glimpse of what the gospel is and see that how each and every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the gospel ought to be more deeply embedded into our minds. First thing I want you to see this morning, looking at 1 Peter 3.18, is The fact that Jesus' death was special. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now we know that Jesus was approximately 33 years of age when he died. And other than the fact of his young age, nothing seems to stand out as unusual about the statement that he died. We're acquainted with death all the time. People die all the time. The Bible says it is appointed under men once to die and after this the judgment. Usually not much is recorded about a person's death. You can go back in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles and you can read about the various leaders of the land, the various kings. It would give the king's name and say... He lived from this year to this year and reigned from this year to this year and then he died and he slept with his fathers. And then the narrative simply moves on to record the activity and the life of the next king. But folks, when we come to the death of the Lord Jesus, we need to understand that about one-third of the Gospels is devoted to Jesus' death. Now I want you to think about that a moment. 
out of a three-year public ministry where Jesus taught many parables and did many miracles, about one-third of each gospel is dedicated to that last week and even the last day of Jesus' life. Clearly something is special about his death. It was no ordinary death. It was very unique, very special. It was exceptional. In fact, we could say everything about the life of the Lord Jesus was exceptional. His birth was not ordinary. It was special as well. He was born of a virgin. His life was different than any other life because he was the only man who ever lived who committed no sin. And therefore his death was different than any other death. We see here that Peter writes, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. His death was special as it relates to sin. You and I will never understand the death of Jesus until we understand its relationship to sin. Sin brings death. Adam and Eve died. They died physically and they died spiritually. Why? Because they sinned. We die for the very same reason. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now that brings up an interesting question. Why did Jesus then die? Because I've just said that Jesus lived a sinless life. Well, Jesus' death was special because being ordained by God, it was voluntary. In a sense, his death was a real paradox. He didn't have to die on the one hand, but he did have to die on the other hand. It was in the plan of God. The Bible says that Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. So in that sense, he had to die. It was the ordained plan and will of God because there was no other way to ultimately, finally, completely deal with sin once and for all. So in that sense, he had to die. But in relationship to sin, he didn't have to die because he was sinless. And so he died a voluntary, sacrificial death. He laid down his life for us. In John 10, he said, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and... I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So his death was special. Why then would he die for us? Well secondly I want you to see this morning. His death was substitutionary. Peter says in verse 18 here that the just died for the unjust. It was substitutionary in nature. 
Jesus didn't simply die as a martyr for a good cause. That happens all the time. And Jesus didn't simply die to to lay down for us a, a good pattern or a good example. Now, it's true It was a good example what he did. He said, greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. But that's not even the real reason that Jesus died. Why did he die? Well, he died because God is a holy God. If you could narrow down the description of God to just one word alone, I think that word would have to be holy. On the other hand, man is sinful. We are sinful by nature and by choice. Now, you don't hear that much today. You pick up the papers and you read that man is violent or that somebody has this disorder or that disorder. But never, never once will you hear in the media somebody say, that was sinful what happened today. But all sin will be punished. God will not overlook sin. For God to wink at sin and pass it over would mean it would compromise His holiness. The Bible plainly teaches us that God must and will deal with all sin. But the wonderful thing for us is that He is willing to deal with it. He's willing to punish it. Through an exchange. Through a substitute. And we see this idea of substitution even in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament teaching about the Passover lamb was a lesson in substitution. Now folks, we make a terrible mistake when we don't read our Old and New Testament together. Some people read their Old Testament as though there is no New Testament that completes or that fulfills all of the promises and the types and the shadows. Some, on the other hand, read the New Testament as though there's no Old Testament foundation on which it builds. But if we're going to make sense out of the Bible, we've got to connect the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And that's what I want to try to do this morning. And and we see that it's not an arbitrary connection that we're making. In fact, it is a connection that the Lord Jesus himself made. He did so, for example, in Luke 22 when when Luke records how Jesus instituted the, the Lord's Supper, how he connected what he was about to do in the institution of the Lord's Supper, he connected that directly with the Old Testament Passover celebration. What the Passover celebration was to the Jew, the Lord's Supper is to the Christian. The Passover involved the killing of a lamb. The Lord's Supper likewise involves the killing of a lamb, the Lord Jesus. In your mind, go back to the book of Exodus, what we read a moment ago, and you'll remember that the lamb was a substitute for the firstborn male in the land of Egypt. They were to take the blood of the Passover lamb and they were to sprinkle it on the doorpost. And what did God say? God said, when I see the blood, 
I will pass over that house. That's what we read earlier in chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. And there's some very interesting things I want you to notice there. They were to take the blood and they were to put it on the doors and they were to roast the meat. They were not to eat the meat raw and they were not to ingest the blood. You see, for one thing, the Egyptians and their pagan religions with their false gods, they would eat raw meat in some of their festivals, raw meat, and they would ingest the blood. And by eating the raw meat of the animal and ingesting the blood, they thought that some kind of magical powers passed through to them. And so God said to the Hebrews... Don't eat the meat raw and don't ingest any of the blood. They were to roast the lamb and they were to have it there on the table, head, legs, inner parts, everything. Now why were they to do that? Because they were to look at the table and not simply see a collection of various kinds of meats, but they were to see a single Lamb. And it is that single lamb that was their substitute. Now with the, with the lamb killed and roasted and the blood on the doors, you had a substitute. And it meant that night that God would pass over you. God would pass over your household. Now folks, not to have the blood on the household, what did that mean? That meant that you would be punished. You would be judged. God's judgment would fall on you if the blood was not on your doors. And by taking the firstborn of the Egyptians, there's absolutely no way that the Egyptians could wake up the next morning and say this was a coincidence. Just a lot of people died in the land. You see, if it was just kind of a random thing, the firstborn died, secondborn died, lastborn died, women died, men, if just everybody, different people throughout Egypt had died, what would the Egyptians have concluded? They would have concluded that just some kind of random plague had fallen upon Egypt and they wouldn't necessarily connect it as a judgment from God. But by it only being the firstborn male, they would have to conclude, hmm, there's something. This isn't a random act. This is the judgment of God. This is not just a simple human tragedy. Something on a deeper level is happening here. Now the only thing that separated the Israelites from the Egyptians was the blood of the lamb. It wasn't a matter of being rich or poor or male or female. The distinction was the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb spared those households that had the blood of the lamb covering it. Those households were spared, whereas the others weren't. The blood of the lamb was the only distinction. 
Now, at the time of the Passover, Egypt was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, but no amount of human power, wealth, or status can spare you if the blood of the Lamb was not present on your doorpost. But again, the Israelites were passed over. They were spared God's judgment. And this was the key event. In the Old Testament. The Passover and the Exodus. That was the key event. In the Old Testament. Just like Calvary is the key event in the New Testament. Those lambs pointed forward to Jesus Christ. Remember what uh, John the Baptist said about Jesus? When John the Baptist was there in the Jordan River and he was baptizing that day, they looked up and they saw Jesus coming along the shoreline of the Jordan River. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that verse we read a moment ago out of 1 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, Paul said, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And so the Bible itself clearly connects what Jesus did on the cross with what happened in Exodus 12. Exodus 12 was a foreshadowing, a promise of a greater event yet to come, that greater event being Calvary. In the time of Jesus outside of Bethlehem, In what used to be the fields of Boaz, the shepherds raised lambs. Those lambs were special lambs. They were Passover lambs. Those lambs would be brought into Jerusalem uh, during Passover week and they were sacrificed there. They would bring those lambs into Jerusalem through the sheep gate. And you'll remember on that same day Jesus was riding... Uh, into Jerusalem through the eastern gate on what we call Palm Sunday and he was making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so those lambs, that particular year, those lambs were being brought through one gate into the city and Jesus was being brought, was riding in through another gate. Those Passover lambs would have been examined for three days. The priest would have got a hold of them and examined everything about them to make sure that they were indeed without any spot or blemish because if they had any fault in them, any spot or blemish in them, they would have been rejected. Now, we remember what was going on in the life of Jesus that week between between, uh, Palm Sunday and when Christ was crucified. Those three days, Christ was being examined. The Pharisees were examining him, questioning him. The Sadducees were, the Herodians were, the civil leaders were. They questioned him and they challenged him and they could find no blemish in him. There was nothing wrong. In fact, they had to come up with something. They had to produce false witnesses because on their own they could find nothing against the Lord Jesus because he was the perfect Lamb of God. And in fact, finally, Pilate concluded, Behold, I find no basis for a charge against him. As Jesus' cross was being prepared, the priest would have been preparing their utensils of death to kill those little woolly lambs. And then at 3 o'clock... In the afternoon on Good Friday, Jesus cried out from the cross, It is finished. 
perfect sacrifice had been made. And from that time on, all of those little Passover lambs would not be needed again. They had been a picture of substitution, an incomplete picture that had to be done over and over again. Jesus was the Lamb of God complete, never needing to be done over again. And so all through the Bible we see that God allowed a substitution to be made for sin. Again, those Old Testament ones had to be redone time and time again every single year. But in Jesus, the substitution to end all substitutions was made. And that's why Peter says here, For Christ also died for sins once for all. Once for all, Jesus died the death you and I deserve to die. And it never has to be redone. In Roman times, when a man was put in prison, there was a written document of his crime that was nailed to his prison door. His crime against the state was was listed out. His punishment was listed. How long he was to stay incarcerated was listed out. And when his time was up, they would come and they would write one word across that page. And that one word was what? Tetelestai. It's finished. Again, what did Christ say from the cross? Tetelestai. It is finished. We continue to see substitution in the New Testament. Romans 5 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, God will punish sin. All sin will be dealt with and it will be punished. But the only question that remains is who will bear that punishment? Either you and I will bear that punishment for our sin or Christ will. The grace of God is that He allows Christ to be our sin substitute. All of God's wrath against sin was directed at Christ and Christ voluntarily took that wrath and He died in your place and He died in my place, the just for the unjust. Folks, that is what the gospel is all about. Substitution. His death was special, unlike any other death. It was substitutionary. Third thing I want you to see is that Jesus' death was sufficient. Look at what Peter goes on to say when he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Somebody might wonder, well, if I trust Christ and Christ alone for my salvation, Will I really be saved? Does it truly matter what Christ did? And what does Peter say about that? The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. You see folks, it's so clear. Romans 5.1 says, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God and access into his presence. Jesus takes us to God. The just died for the unjust, Peter says here, that he might 
bring us to God. And I've told you what that phrase, bring us to God, is uh, before. I've told you about the, 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 the Greek word there is prosago. It refers to a mediator. If you go into the, pres- uh, the presence of, say, the President of the United States or a governor, you don't just open up the door and waltz in there yourself. Somebody has to take you. Somebody has to bring you and introduce you. And Peter is saying by Christ's death on the cross reconciling us to a holy God, that's the effect of what Christ does. Through Christ there's forgiveness of sins. There's reconciliation with God that that through Christ I can go into the presence of God. Remember what happened when Jesus said tetelestai? The Bible says that the the veil into the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could go into and only, only he could one time a year. Nobody else could go. But when Christ died on the cross, the Bible says that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, thereby signifying that the way into the Holy of Holies, the way into the presence of God, was now open for all of those who come through Christ. Folks, every time we come to the Lord's table, these are the realities that we're celebrating. Now again, go back with me in your mind to Exodus 12. We were told there that no bones were to be broken. Each lamb was to be eaten under one roof. It was not to be divided up. We know likewise on the cross not one of Jesus' bones was broken. When we come to the Lord's table like like we do this morning, we come as one body. That's why we observe this together under one roof. We don't divide this up and this group over here take part of it and go off over here and this group over here go there and this group in in the middle here, they go somewhere else. We don't divide it up. We partake as one body. That's why I think it's so wrong what you see today in some weddings. You see the bride and groom up on the platform and the bride and groom together, absent from everybody else, will partake of the Lord's Supper while everybody else just watches on. That's not how it's to be done. We partake as one body. And in Exodus 12, 43, you'll recall, no foreigner was to take part in this. No one who was not a part of the covenant community of Israel was allowed to to take part in the celebration, the observance of the Passover. Now there was a process that was put in place. Remember what God said in Exodus 12 that process was? If a foreigner, an alien, a slave among you wants to identify with the the community of Israel, with God's people, then he and all the males in his household are to be circumcised and then they can be a part of the Israelite community. And so persons in general could not take part until that had been done. 
It's the same in the New Testament church. Not everybody can or even should take part in the Lord's Supper. Only those who have come to Christ, our new Passover lamb. When you come to Christ, the New Testament says you receive a circumcision of the heart not made with human hands. One more connection between the Old and the New Covenants. For the Jew not to participate in the Passover was a very serious thing. A Jew was expected to take part in it. From that time on, God said, All of the congregation of Israel, all of the congregation shall keep it. To not participate in circumcision, to not participate in Passover, or any other of the sacred festivals in Israel for that matter, in the Old Testament, you remember what that meant? That meant that you were cut off from Israel. It was unthinkable in the Old Covenant. Those who had been made a part of the redeemed, those who had made a part of Israel, for them not to participate in the corporate life of, of their faith, for them not to participate as a habit, and not to participate in the Passover, it it was unthinkable that God would have done what He had done to make them a part of His family and to forgive them of their sins, and then they would not even show up and take part. Completely unthinkable. And that's why God said to them, in such a case, that one is to be cut off from Israel. Now think about that in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews that some of you are studying in Sunday school. Making the connection between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And and how the New Covenant's better in every way. You get to chapter 10 and what's the writer of Hebrews say? Not, Not let any of us forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. Somebody who can identify with Christ and yet at the same time regularly remove themselves from the body of Christ and regularly remove themselves from the ordinances has to examine themselves to see if they're really even in the faith. There is a body life in the New Testament just the way there was in the Old Testament. The body life of the Old Testament is is mirrored in the New Testament by speaking of us as the bride of Christ and the body of Christ where all the pieces function together. And as we meet and worship and celebrate the ordinances we recognize that a far greater sacrifice, something greater than they ever knew in the New Testament, has been offered for us. The blood of the Lord Jesus. Now folks, I want you to see today that when you and I stand before God one day, first of all, let me me point out that there will be no question about that. There's going to be no question that you're going to die and I'm going to die if Jesus tarries 
if Jesus tarries, we will all die. You won't escape that, and I won't escape that. That's, that's not an issue that's in question. And it's not an issue in question that we will all appear before God's judgment bar that day. That's not in question. That's going to happen for every single member of the human race who's ever lived. We're going to die, and we're going to stand before the judgment bar of God. But the issue is in that day, who's going to bear my guilt? Will it be me because I've never come to Christ? In that case, then I'll hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. Or will it be Christ because I've looked to him and him alone for salvation? And to those who have looked to him and him alone for salvation, what's the Bible say in Romans 8, 1? There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing to fear. Perfect love cast out fear. Nothing to fear. Again, I'm going to die. I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I can't change that. But what I, what I can change, what I can have something to do with, is who will bear my guilt and my sin. I want you to understand what the Bible is saying. If you are outside of Christ, He's a new Passover lamb. God is dealing with people on the basis of what they do with Christ. All the old, old covenant sacrifices, they're obsolete as you've read yourself in the book of Hebrews. They're obsolete. God is dealing with people on the basis of Christ. What have you done with Christ? Have you come to Him? If not, I would beg of you to do so this morning. I would beg of you to do so this morning. If you've already made that decision, come to Christ, not only do you have access into God's presence, you have reconciliation with God and, and peace with God, but the Bible even says you and I, as His children now, can boldly go into His presence. Every need that we ever have in our lives, we can boldly, day by day, go into God's presence and we can lay our needs before Him. We can cast all of our care upon Him because He cares for us. That is a privilege that believers have, that Christians have, that nobody else in the world has. Do you understand that? Nobody else, because Jesus says no one comes to the Father but by Him. Christians have access into God's presence and forgiveness and reconciliation. And again, the only question for you and for me this morning is have I come to Christ? Do I enjoy these privileges? Or will I be stuck there and it'll be too late 
And I'll hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. Folks, it is in this life that that question has to be settled. If you've not settled it, I'd ask you to come forward in the invitation in just a moment. I'd like to pray for you and with you. There are others that will pray with you and for you. Life is a vapor. Don't gamble with your soul.